Welcome to another edition of Revealing the Diamond. I'm your host, Tiago Prem. And this week on the show, we're going to talk about effective practice. And when we talk about effective practice, we're going to talk about the different elements of how to make the practice uh, really healing, really beneficial, embodied, and something that you do for a lifetime. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to this episode. Before we get into it, I just want to give you a couple of announcements. The first is that I will be doing an online Mysore yoga program, which means that I'm going to help you individually, but in a group setting in the Zoom room, uh, to build your practice. And this is for everybody. You could be a longtime Ashtanga yoga practitioner. You could never have tried doing this practice ever before and everything in between. And it's going to happen... Uh, in March from the 5th until the 24th. Uh, So two and a half weeks, I've got a great low intro rate. So if you listen to the podcast and you're thinking to yourself, I would really love to do Tattva's yoga and become a full-time student and in mentorship, uh, but maybe the finances aren't available right now, that's a great option. I'm making it very affordable. So please do check it out at tattvasyoga.com. Go to the online Mysore program. Also want to let you know if you've been considering becoming a full-time student of the uh, Tattva's Yoga Mentorship Program, uh, the rates are going to almost double um, just because of the demand and my ability to connect with the students. Um, So I'm giving you a heads up. March 1st, they are going to go up. So if you've been on the fence, now's the time. And also, like if you want to put a payment program in place, at that rate and secure it uh, before they shift on March 1st, reach out and we'll work something out, okay? This is uh, big things are happening uh, for me and it's a result of this commitment to practice that I'm gonna share in this episode. The last thing I wanted to share with you is that um, you can become a subscriber of this show uh, for as low as $5 a month, I think three US even. And there's a couple of ways to do that. I have a Patreon page now, so you can check out the Patreon page. I'm just going to bring it up on my computer because I can't remember the uh, <laughs> the address. That's how new it is. So it's patreon.com backslash revealing the diamond. So you can become a subscriber there, or you can actually do it right through Spotify. Uh, you have access to the 18 episodes on the Bhagavad Gita. And starting this week, I'm going to start uh, a review of the Yoga Sutras. So uh, subscribers will have access to that content. Uh, please do subscribe. If, if, if you're like a bit of a Luddite when it comes to technology, uh, no problem. You can always um, send me a message. And uh, then from there, we can uh, figure out how to get you set up. I've had, I've had a couple peeps uh, trying to figure out how to make it work. So that's why I've added the Patreon. We've got the Patreon, we've got the Spotify option, and uh, you can become become a subscriber and get access to these tech studies that we're doing uh, for dedicated students. You know, just remembering that uh, I do my best to make this stuff available uh, at the lowest pr- price I can. Um, I'm also a father, a parent, a householder, and I have responsibilities uh, that will allow me to continue to share this work. So stay tuned for that. And also stay tuned for some in-person Mysore opportunities in Vancouver in April. But we'll talk about that at a later date. For now, let's talk about effective practice. So as many of you know, I've been on this uh, path of yoga for decades. Um, I I got interested in yoga as a teenager. I'm now in my 40s and having like a major awakening. Some people have a midlife crisis. I'm having a one-third of life awakening uh, to um, the depth of the experiences that I've had um, right now. So it's not a midlife crisis. It's a third of life awakening that's happening for me. And I want to share uh, with you, you know, the, the depth of that experience and, and hopefully encourage you on your path. Uh, so the, f- the first place I want to start is by talking about how this is a long journey. It's a life journey. 
So just like recovery is a life journey, just like uh, any kind of faith or spiritual practice is a life journey, um, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. I sometimes talk to uh, recovery clients and they're like, oh, what would it feel like to be like a year sober? Like, I just can't wait. And it's like, don't worry about that. Do what's in front of you. And I've seen the similar sort of thing in the Ashtanga yoga world and with relationship to present day yoga. And it's like, people really uh, don't like the traditional way that Ashtanga yoga is taught where it's like, okay, you just learn the sun salutations and you refine them and you refine them and then you get a couple of poses and you know, people talk about gatekeeping, etc. But there's some there's some beauty to that where it's like, why rush? You know what I mean? Like, why try and uh, get access to everything before you're ready? Like, why not just go slow? Why not think about this as like a lifelong practice so you don't need to race through it all? Just fine-tune it as you go. Work at your edge where you are and think about it being a long-term uh, practice same with recovery it's like the benefits of recovery is a life lived with mental clarity and a commitment to service and a, a commitment to spiritual growth right so it's like well how do you get those benefits well you don't you don't get those benefits necessarily on day one they come uh, from a life lived in practice so i just want to remind you of that to just take your time and consider your why, like why would you like to get sober? Or why would you like to do yoga? Or why are you interested in spiritual practices? Or whatever it is that you're, I mean, those are some of the primary areas that, uh, that I share. Um, and, and that can shift over time, but just take a little time and think about that. And then notice that the way that you're going to um, embody that or live that out is a little bit at a time. And my friend Kat, she shared, she lives in Toronto, she shared this beautiful uh, post on Instagram with me recently. And they were talking about how many times people uh, don't do good enough for long enough because we want it all now, right? In present day yoga, it's like we want all the poses right now. And uh, the challenge, and I've experienced this myself and can speak for myself, is that we tend to lean into our strengths and then avoid the things that we're not that good at. And then uh, we have these plateaus where we may stop doing the practice altogether or just not, not really grow in the practice, right? And that's a beautiful thing about having like a, a set um, way of practicing, like a Tai Chi form where it's like you do the form. And, and you, some part of you may be like, I don't want to do the form in that way. And I get that. And, and people get attached to the form all the time in, in all kinds of spiritual practices. In recovery, uh, people get attached you know, to the uh, dogma of the AA system. Or in uh, religion, people get attached to uh, like how you dress in church. Or people get attached to uh, dogma, like the notion of hell, even though we don't really hear Jesus talking about that. He's talking more about compassionate living. But we get hung up on these ideas, and we lose sight of what is the purpose of them. We want all the poses now so that we can look good and feel good. Okay, well, that's nice, but... <laughs> There's something deeper going on here where, you know, the uh, Patanjali talks about how the yogi is the same in praise and blame. And what that means is that we're going to work through the suffering and we're going to work through uh, the joys of being alive. Like we're going to, we're here for all of it. You know what I mean? Um, so I want to share something with you today about this idea of, um, the, the technique is not really the point, but we can work with the technique to have a deeper experience of who we are. Because we're talking about effective practice. This is from the book Everything Belongs by Richard Rohr. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. This is what he said. Have you been loved well by someone? 
so well that you feel confident that person will receive you and will forgive your worst fault? That's the kind of security the soul receives from God. When the soul lives in that kind of security, it is no longer occupied with technique. That's talking about yoga. You know, yoga meaning uh, this connection of the uh, concept of the individual soul with uh, the whole or our individual self connecting with God. It's this kind of security when you're really truly loved. That's the experience of the oneness, the yoking, the joining. When the soul lives in that kind of security, it is no longer occupied with technique. The postures are not the point. The uh, rituals are not the point. Okay, doesn't mean they're not necessary or not important. They're not the primary point. The point is this joining, this union, this oneness with God. We can go back and do the rituals, the spiritual disciplines, but we no longer follow them idolatrously, which means that we're, we, we begin to worship the technique when really the point of the technique is the connection. You know what I'm saying? That's the idolatry. And we somehow along the line uh, got it, it in our minds that, you know, idolatry means bowing to a statue. Well, in some ways it does in, in that it's like the statue itself doesn't carry the essence. It's not, it may be there as a form to remind you. I may look at a photograph of my teacher to remind me, you know, to do my best, to be consistent in my practice. I'm not worshiping the picture of my teacher. He's just a man with uh, problems just like me, you know. But it's the the ritual itself is not the point. But if it helps you to remember, to remember God, to remember love, then by all means, do that. And some people are going to tell you, oh, well, you can't do it that way. Well, they don't know because they're not you. You know, we're talking about being very well loved by someone. Someone that is going to love you, accept you, forgive your worst faults no matter what. And that feeling of love, that's the point. And then all of these things, techniques and rituals and spiritual disciplines, they may provide us with an access point to remember. And those are going to be unique for everybody. But that's the purpose of practice, to remember. Okay, That's the yoga. Right? He goes on to say, we don't, content, we don't condemn people who don't do it our way. When we have that experience of a love, there's no need for condemnation or judging. All techniques, rituals, and spiritual disciplines are just fingers pointing to the moon, like in Zen. Right? The moon itself is, is the point <laughs> of the finger, pun, pun intended. The moon itself is why the finger is pointing. And the finger may help someone who has not experienced the moon, but if we get attached to the finger... Uh, we miss the point, which is sort of a like the opposite of a pun, meaning like we miss the moon. You with me? Okay. But the moon is the important thing, not the pointing fingers. We stand in adoration before the moon. We sing holy, 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 or we chant Om, or we, you know, try and make progress in the series, or we. Whatever it is that we're doing as an act of devotion, we lose sight of the connection is the point. Okay? We say, yes, yes, it is good. We are energized by what we see, and our private darkness is no great surprise. Who cares? Who cares where I am on the ladder of perfection? That's an egocentric question. Where am I? How holy am I? Am I making progress? These all become silly questions. If God can receive me, who am I not to receive myself? Warts and all. That's the yogi being the same in praise and blame. You still show up, you know, you still show up and work through your stuff. I mean, that's the great thing about a practice like Ashtanga yoga or something that's physically challenging, like running a marathon or, you know, doing hard things. 
you're not going to, um, it's a becoming is what I'm trying to say. You know, you got to, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, you've got to do, do good enough for long enough. And what's going to keep you showing up for good enough is the devotion piece. Think of something greater than your feelings or greater than your preferences. That's a good one, right? We, we sort of have lost ourselves in what was called the Enlightenment period when uh, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. It, it's a head trip. We entered into a head trip and then called it the Enlightenment era. But really, it isn't your thinking that makes you who you are. It's your being. You with me? You know, like Ram Dass, be here now. Okay? It's not your thinking. Yes, you have the capacity to think, but the think is also just another form or technique. The intellect, another practice, jnana yoga, that you engage with. But the purpose of the jnana yoga is to experience what is beyond the thinking. Right? And bringing whatever it is that you can that is going to connect you to your deepest self forward and uh, cultivating that as a practice, that's what's going to give you that long-term effective practice. And as you go, there a part of this becoming is realizing that there are aspects of your life that are dharma, which means like you are called to them for a specific reason. And they may not be clear to you today, but if you feel the pull to do something, like to go and study in India or to uh, learn Ashtanga Yoga, even though you may not be in great physical condition, or to learn to play an instrument or to, uh, you know, have faith in Islam, even though it's considered unpopular by your peers and your family, or your whatever it is, you know the answer. I don't know the answer. You know, you you feel that inner pull, and then there's a it's wrapped in a whole ton of resistance, reasons why you can't or shouldn't. You're on. You're in the presence of Dharma. There's this inner pull, this inner knowing that this is something that you have to do, and then it's wrapped in all the reasons why you can't or shouldn't. I would explore that. And as you explore that, a great thing is to have a, a consistent practice first thing in the morning that's going to bring you up against your edges. It's going to bring you up to those reasons why you can't, it's going to bring you up against you know reasons why you're you're not good enough or you don't have what it takes or you know and then you're going to cultivate fortitude as you show up for that and work through it and as you do it there's going to be a revealing as to like what are your primary keys that you're going to um, take on as your navigation system. And believe me, <laughs> it's taken me most of my life to get to the point now where I'm like, okay, it makes sense. And, and so, a lot of the resistance that I was coming up against was um, listening to the naysayers and listening to people say it hasn't been done that way before or, you know, and, and it not making sense to the world around me, and then me going, okay, well, I guess it doesn't make sense to me either. And I've noticed that when I'm in consistent practice, when I'm coming up against my edge, I don't feel like getting up, I don't feel like doing the thing, yada, 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 um, I have a lot more clarity. I'm still confused a lot of the time. But spending time in prayer, spending time in practice, keeping my mind as clear as I can and my heart as open as I can and doing it every day 
because man, I close up shop real easy. I get up in my head. I close up my heart. I fall into addictive patterns and harmful patterns. And once again, I've forgotten who I am and why I'm here. And so those techniques are a daily polishing of the mirror so I can see myself clearly. And then as you do that, you can get really clear on what you're here for and, uh, and follow that unapologetically and follow that with fortitude and follow that with resilience and allow that to be your guide. You know, I heard somebody, uh, a friend along my journey tell me that, you know, the Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss. He said that uh, he regretted saying that and that he, what he should have said is follow your blisters. And I love that. And that's what we're talking about here. You know, work on your stuff. You don't know how to get started? Do the online MISO program with me. Come to class. Go all in. Do the Tadva's Yoga Studies uh, program. You know, if you like what I'm sharing, jump in. Do it. Are there financial barriers? We can work with that. No excuses. Let's go. You know, I'm having to do that myself. I had to do Kapotasana, my, my most... Uh, revered and terrifying posture in my practice right now and my teacher had me do it five times today and it was awful however i proved to myself before my second cup of coffee before i had breakfast before anyone in my house was awake that i can do hard things and that's powerful and that's going to be really powerful if you're a person who's choosing to live a life of dharma and if you're sitting there and you're going, I don't really know what my dharma is, that's okay. Remember, it's a becoming. It's a long-term, gradual process of revealing the diamond. <laughs> okay, so if you don't know today, that's fine. Are you engaged in the work today? That's what you ask. Not do I know the answer, but am I engaged in the work today? And then as you engage in the work, how to do it will be revealed. This is from uh, Discipline is Destiny. It's a great book by Ryan Holiday. I highly recommend it. It's in uh, the chapter, Put Up Boundaries. I want to share it with you. Here's what he says. Keeping the main thing, the main thing is impossible if you're not capable of saying no or pushing back when others put too much on your plate. Keeping the main thing, the main thing is impossible if you're not capable of saying no or pushing back when others put too much on your plate. So let's say that you're someone that, yeah, you're pretty clear on, you know, some aspects of your dharma. You know, you're not, you're not hard-lined and rigid. I mean, in some areas you have non-negotiables, uh, but in other areas you can be adaptable. But it's becoming clear to you uh, why you're here, okay, and, and what it is you need to do. Now, if, if that's not you, like I said, develop a practice that's going to help reveal that. Okay? We're talking about effective practice, and it's going to come long-term, guaranteed. And then, as you go along the path, you if there is a path, as you go along living your life, how's that for language? Um, you're going to notice that there's going to be temptation from inside and outside of your being Um to do it a different way, or to do something else, or to be more practical, or to be realistic, or to, you know, discouragement, well-meaning discouragement at times, which is the sneakiest one and hardest to deal with. And he's saying here, like, you know, keeping the main thing the main thing, essentially living Dharma, like showing up as you is going to be impossible if you're not capable of saying no or pushing back when others put too much on your plate. And I would even add to that and say it would be impossible if you don't know who you are. And not knowing who you are is the root of disease. Not knowing who you are is the root of addiction. And what we're really talking about here is a trust issue. When you don't trust yourself because you let yourself down over and over and over and over again, you are engaged in a cycle of forgetting who you are. 
And so in order to recover and get into a cycle of remembering who you are, you may want to put some things in place that you can do consistently over time where you say you're going to do something and you do it. I'm not a morning person. Okay, you're not a morning person? Start getting up in the morning. Change the story. Stop saying that. I can't do that because I'm too old. Too old according to whose values and systems. Okay? What is it that you want to do? Defy the odds. Now, that's not just a motivation where you just say in your mind, okay, well, I'm going to do that, and then that's it. That's not enough. You've got to cultivate it on a regular basis. Where are you going? What is your why? And then show up for it a little bit at a time, knowing that you saying you're going to show up and showing up, that's where you build the consistency, which is going to help you in the journey of Dharma. And then when you show up, you put your best quality of effort forward based on your conditions, working through karmas. You don't feel like it. You're in pain. You're tired. You know, whatever it is, you just show up and give the best quality of effort based on your conditions. Okay. Let's go a little bit uh, further here. I'm going to just skip ahead. There is a term, energy vampires, meant to describe the kind of people who, because of their lack of boundaries, suck others dry with their neediness, their selfishness, their dysfunction, and their drama. Not only must you not be an energy vampire yourself, but you must be aware that these people exist. You must be strong enough to keep them at arm's distance, even if they're beautiful, even if they're talented even if they're family or old friends from childhood, even if their helplessness calls to the most empathetic part of yourself. So people are going to, like I said, it's going to be unassuming. They might not blatantly be trying to take you off track. It may be unconscious. It may be in a cry for sympathy and help. And you can be there to serve. But be very cautious about what you're doing, who you are, as you do it, so that you don't lose that connection. And take it to God. Take it to prayer. You know, God has the capacity to carry you. And you, that innermost part of yourself, which is connected to God, has it too. But you have to be very clear on what it is you're cultivating practicing. Holiday goes on to say, a country without borders, it has been said, is not really a country at all. So it goes with people. Without boundaries, we are overwhelmed. We're stretched too thin. So thin that those features that previously defined us start to disappear until there's no telling where we start and the energy vampires around us end. This is why we clean up our desk. This is why we ignore provocations that have nothing to do with us. This is why we don't speak every thought that pops into our head why we have to figure out how to be responsible with our finances and manage our time efficiently, why we go to bed early and on time, every time, and wake up early every morning, because we're trying to corral our lives, our emotions, our concerns in such a way that it's possible to manage them all, that we are controlling them instead of the other way around. Understand, most of the people doing important work are people you've never heard of, they want it that way. Most ha happy people don't need you to know how happy they are. They're not thinking about you at all. Everyone is going through something, but some people choose not to vomit their issues on everyone else. The strongest people are self-contained. They keep themselves in check. They keep their business where it belongs. Is it true that some people will get away with conduct that is unbecoming? Yes. They may even have fun or get rich doing it, and our boundaries leave that concern to them. We know that in the end, they are punishing themselves. As William Penn famously said, those with strong boundaries are so much more, are, are so much more their own that paying common dues, they are rulers of all the rest. Set your boundaries, enforce them, gently but firmly, Treat everyone else's with as much respect as you'd want for your own. Be the adult in a world full of emotional children. 
great book. Now, here's the thing with boundaries. We want them to be dharmic boundaries, not boundaries that enforce and uh, sort of perpetuate that emotional, uh, childish behavior that Holiday spoke about at the end. We want them to support our dharma and not our BS, <laughs> you know, because that can happen. And so what I would encourage you to do, if you haven't already, is to look at, like, what, what are the practices in your life that are dharmic practices that you are here to embody and to share and to serve through? And I've done that myself, and I came up with the acronym J-A-V-S, J-A-V-S. And without these practices and the values connected to these practices and then the habits you know, that I do in support of these practices, um, I wouldn't really be able to be a, a good teacher or a good student or a, a present father or a kind human being or someone who's willing to admit when they're wrong and say sorry um, and really mean it, you know? And I wanted to share those four with you today as we come down to the end of the uh, show. And I would encourage you to do the same. So the J stands for Jesus. I put a ro um, reel on social media today, and, and I was saying something to the effect of, you know, anytime I talk about this, people say, like, how could you be a follower of Jesus when the church has caused so much uh, pain and suffering in the world today? And I get that. And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that I'm a follower of the church. I'm saying that, you know, I had this near-death experience in the jungle of Costa Rica and when I was really suffering and when I was like, what if I died? Like, and it was just me and I couldn't take my child with me and I couldn't take my partner with me and I couldn't take my parents with me and my things and my identity and the roles that I play, not even my practices, like I would have to lay them all down. Who was I? And, and I was afraid. And when I was afraid, who was there with me? Jesus, there's no doubt. And this is just my experience. Your, your experience may be different. But for me, that was a for sure thing. And as I recovered from the illness, I re-attuned uh, myself to gospel music, which was really helping me because I'd gone through some negative experiences in yoga and uh, I just couldn't do the mantras, and I couldn't do a lot of the techniques, and I, you know, I was in a, a rough spot. I was depressed and suffering, and had experienced a lot of loss, and I had an aversion to a lot of the devotional practices that were supporting me at the time. And so I just said no to all of it. I'm just like, leave me here to suffer. And then when I came face to face with my mortality, Jesus was there and gospel music was really my bhakti yoga. Like these songs, not, not the church, not the rules, not the dogma, not the belief systems, but the, just this feeling of love through sound. And, and that's going to be unique to you. You know, everybody who is a human being needs art, music, and solitude. There's no doubt about it. That is a, a great spiritual way to live. You know, we all need art. We all need music. We all need quiet time alone. You know, in nature. We all need that. It's, it's part of who we are. But anyways, you know, I was talking about, on the, about why follow Jesus and why Jesus at the top of these practices for me that guide my life. You know, and this is how I measure my life. Like, these are the main priorities, and without these priorities in place, then I know that I'm going to lose sight of who I am and fall into disease, addiction. It's going to make it hard for me to show up and do my duties and fulfill my responsibilities and live my dharma in this life. So Jesus, and the reason why I would be a follower of Jesus, even though you know, the church has behaved so badly over time, is that I just love the way that he um, 
is moved with compassion. It's really about compassion, right? He didn't forget the downtrodden. He didn't forget the oppressed. He was kind to outsiders and misfits, people who were considered to be unclean, you know, by the systems, the religious uh, dogma of the time. He associated with sinners. He infuriated the religious establishments. I know I do that. (laughs) So I'm just following in his footsteps. He broke the rules, refused to cast the first stone. He gravitated towards the sick, the mentally unwell, the addicted, the homeless, and the hopeless. He preferred stories and metaphors to overtly answering questions, avoiding dogma along the way. He answered questions with more questions. How very Zen. He met demands for proof. Like, prove how spiritual you are. Prove that it's working with demands for faith. Look inside your own heart. That's where you'll find the answer. He taught his followers to give without expecting anything in return, to love their enemies to the point of death, like in the face of death, at the hands of somebody who really wants to harm you, right? To love them. Not to strike back, like, how did we get from these profound teachings, yogic teachings, to some of the behavior of uh, you know, the Western Christianity? It's a completely different thing we're talking about. And so for somebody to think that, oh, yeah, I'm, al- I'm aligning myself with that, yeah, I understand. Like, why would you do that? But I'm talking about a deep love here that is beyond logic. That's what interests me. To live simply with not a lot of stuff, right? A parigraha, the practice of emptiness and letting go. To say what we mean and mean what we say. To live with truth, satya. The way that he healed each person differently. The way that he taught each person differently. Like that's one of the things that I love about the Mysore practice in Ashtanga Yoga. It's like, yeah, we're all doing the same practice, but everybody's a little different. And if I'm really reverent to the students and reverent to the practice, the way that I'm going to be of service to other to others is to recognize everybody's going through something different. Some people are doing the practice to recover from drug addiction. Some people are doing the practice because they have pain in their body. Some people are doing the practice because they want to be able to stand up off the floor. Some people are, you know, I mean, who knows? And that's why having that one-to-one space with the student is so important, okay? And recognizing when you're engaged in conversation about other people's faith, you know? Like Guru Nanak from the Sikh faith was a, a guide for me back to Jesus. There's no doubt about it, you know? Because the values are the same values. And then, you know, we have people who are at odds with each other because somebody's wearing the turban of the Sikhs and is deeply moved by the teachings of Guru Nanak, and then somebody is deeply moved by the teachings of Jesus. If you were having an embodied experience of those teachings, you would see each other for who you are, which is... (laughs) in this divine love and state of oneness. There isn't a separation between the two. Those truths are incredibly profound and universal, and the one who's having an embodied, contemplative experience of this, you would see that they are you, that your experience is the same. It's the same experience of God. It's not separate. It's the ego or the devil, whatever language you want to use, that's causing you to think, oh no, but my belief and my way is superior. Uh-uh. That's a head trip. Ego trip. Okay? He didn't give a list of beliefs to check off or dogma to follow. I mean, these are this is a great way to live. This is how the yoga practice works. He loved after betrayal. He healed after being hurt. He forgave while being nailed to a tree. And he asked anyone who was a follower of his to do the same. He wants us to live in our hearts and in our hands, to feed the hungry, 
just like the Sikhs and the Hare Krishnas and any other spiritual practice that is having a deep embodied experience, it's like, how do you connect with that love? Not by arguing about who's right and who's wrong. How does that serve anybody? Feed people like Neem Karoli Baba, right? Be like Jesus. What did he do? He lost himself in love. Feed people. Feed the hungry. Be kind to the animals. Be kind to children. Be kind to the misfits of society, the misunderstood and the untreated, the addicted, the lost, the hopeless. Right? Use our hands and our hearts to reach out to our enemies, to make peace, to forgive, even if it doesn't make sense, even if we're right, logically speaking. To heal the sick, to comfort the lonely. That's why. That's what Jesus is that kind of example for me. And for me, that's, the, that's my guiding light. And I've seen it in so many other traditions. I've seen it in the Buddha. I've seen it in Guru Nanak. I've seen it in the indigenous teachings and reading the works of people like Richard Wagamese. It's universal. It's the presence that is never absent. And I happen to relate to it via Jesus. And because of Jesus, I see it everywhere. Richard Rohr said in that book I was sharing with you earlier that the great you know, tragedy of, of Christianity in the world is that it went out and tried to cancel or override, destroy uh, by means of violent behavior, you know, horrific acts, try to force um, its ideologies on others. And the wild thing about that is that it goes against what Jesus taught. And it's called Christianity. And where it could have done so much better is would be to sort of um, join these teachings of compassion and healing and feeding the hungry and uh, forgiveness and healing the sick and comforting the lonely and and bring that as an offering to the table of what's already there to enhance together you know, by embodying these virtues, which is what Jesus called us to do. And we, we haven't done a great job of that. And so I feel called to do better without abandoning my connection to this, uh, these beautiful teachings and this beautiful uh, guiding light in my life. So that's the J. Then the A is Ashtanga Yoga. So yes, I've done many practices, and yes, they've helped me along the way. And now what I'm, what I'm doing with Ashtanga is I'm having these deep experiences. Like I knew intellectually when people say like the body stores trauma and those traumas uh, can be moved through the physical and through the breath and you know people having these profound experiences with plant medicines and all of that. Like that happens to me in my Ashtanga yoga practice. And I, I understood it intellectually before, but I didn't feel it like on a visceral level until returning to Ashtanga. And, you know, the timing was right. And I'm here for it. And I show up and I do the work and it's hard. But it's really opening my heart. It's opening my heart to Jesus. It's opening my heart to my family. It's opening my heart to my neighbors. It's opening my heart to the students. It's opening my heart to my teachers. It's really, really uh, helping me to be a fuller, more serviceful, kinder version of myself and prove to myself that I can do hard things. And so I'm committed to doing that practice and to sharing that practice and for the long term because the benefits have been so profound. And it came into my life at a time when I wasn't sure if I could go on practicing and teaching. And by the grace of God, I was brought to an understanding that I thrive in this kind of structure. And I can be of service and I can live those values that Jesus taught because of my daily sadhana. It helps me. So J, Jesus, A, Ashtanga, V, 
vegan, plant-based living. When I was sick, I explored, you know, maybe having some meat and I had heard all these things about seed oil and how butter is good for you and the Western price and eating meat and, and, uh, and I opened myself up to having some of those experiences and I just ethically and morally, like I just, I can't do it. I tried. And yeah, I probably f- had some like good physical feelings of health, but uh, it was too much for my heart. I see these sentient creatures, the cow and the pig and the chicken and the fish, and and I see the pets that we have and love, and I think it doesn't make sense to me that one we eat and the other we you know, take care of. And that's okay if that's not if that's not for you, do your thing. But at the center of my practice is compassion. And I really don't understand for me personally how I can make that the center of my life and consume animal flesh. You know, when I was really sick, I explored that. I might have had some good benefits physically, but spiritually, no. You know, and I know a lot of people say like, oh, well, if you eat grass-fed and ethically raised and on a local farm, well, the thing is we don't have the uh, land to do that for everyone to live like that based on the population and the way that animals are treated is horrific. And the deeper, you know, a long time ago I was saying to a teacher of mine, you know, I really want to um, uphold the same values as you. She's a long time vegan. And she said to me, you don't have to try and fix it with your head. Just do the practice and, you know, make compassion, ahimsa, the center of your uh, intent, and it'll just happen. And I found that to be true. So if you have a lot of hang-ups around it, like I said, you know, generally when you have a calling inside of you and it's wrapped up with all of this doubt and resistance, I would explore that. Because I've had moments where I thought, Oh, well, maybe I could be stronger if I, and maybe I, but they always are selfish reasons. And choosing to be vegan for me is, is not selfish. It makes the most sense because it's not about me and what's in it for me. It's about how can I serve and reduce the suffering of beings to the best of my ability. And for me, it's vegan eating a plant-based lifestyle. So that's my V. And then S is sobriety, meaning no plant medicines. I drink coffee, but no, you know, psychedelics. And I'm talking about me because I've blurred those edges as well in the past. And I've just gotten to this place where I recognize that my faith, my Ashtanga yoga practice, and my commitment to living a compassionate lifestyle is efficient um, for me and staying sober, staying clear and sober, eating a clean diet, going to bed early, getting up early, living a simple life, and uh, no drugs, no drinks, no mind-altering substances except for my caffeine in the morning, you know? that kind of clarity serves me. And so that's how I that's how I got my life is Jesus Ashtanga vegan sober. And I would encourage you to look at for yourself what does that mean for you? And like I said, if you're if you're like I'm not really clear on what my dharma is or how I want to be in this life, well, commit to doing a practice. But if you're clear and something is of benefit to you, you know, or you're looking for a practice, I recommend any of those four. 
you know, but there are many, many ways to do it. Many ways to connect. Those are the fingers pointing at the moon, but the ones that are really working, hold them close and let them guide your path. You see what I'm saying? I'm not telling anyone that they need to do it the way I do it. I'm just sharing with you the transformation I've experienced in my life is getting really clear on those navigational pieces as I live my dharma, which is to uh, teach and share yoga, to support people in sobriety, to you know see how they're related, right? To be kind and compassionate towards the animals, to be strong and flexible, to be resilient and develop mental fortitude through the practice of meditation, and to share that with others, and also to be a um, disciple and student of Jesus with integrity and loving awareness, loving kindness in a world where, you know, the church is, hasn't really done their, maybe they've done their best, kind of like parents, you know, but we need to do better and follow the example uh, of what it means to live a compassionate life. And your example might be somebody else. It could be your grandmother it could be, you know, your in your elders in the indigenous tradition. It could be the earth herself. You know, find your way. Listen to your inner guide. All right, everybody. That's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to uh, be in contact with you if you have any thoughts. Um, if you want to check out those books that I talked about today, one of them is Discipline is Destiny by Ryan Holiday. Another is uh, Everything Belongs by Richard Rohr. Rohr is R-O-H-R. Um, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I'm going to start an exploration in the Yoga Sutras soon here. Uh, so stay tuned for that. In order to access those episodes, you need to become a minimum $5 a month subscriber. You can do that at patreon.com backslash revealing the diamond. You can do that right on the Spotify app. Uh, also, Online Mysore, all levels of experience are welcome. That's going to start at the beginning of March. You can get info at tatvasyoga.com. And lastly, uh, my rates for one-on-one -on -one mentorship in the Tatvas Yoga full-time student program are going up March 1st. So if you feel called to get in and uh, you want to save a little bit of cash, uh, it is definitely the time to hop on board and get it done. If you need uh, some support, financially to you know get on a payment plan that's always an option you can email me tiago prem at tiagoprem.com or hit me up on instagram all right i look forward to seeing you all on the mat in practice soon or on social media or wherever we're connected thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time on revealing the diamond mm -hmm.